Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Greetings and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Uh, episode 2 being created in uh, school closure here in the spring of 2020. Hoping everybody's staying safe and healthy out there and that, uh, you know, you're, you're protecting yourselves and your family and enjoying some history and hopefully listening to this right now as, uh, as we're going through. So this will be our industrialization part two episode. Uh, we talked about it being the top half of society versus sort of the bottom half of society. Uh, excuse my clicks as I move some things around here, making sure everything's working. So the last show, we kind of covered the top half of society, right? The bottom down view of history, which is the more common view. I think you see in the earlier points of, uh, of the study and the discipline later on, you really begin to see now nowadays more of the bottom-up view. So that's what this, this episode I hope to do. We're going to cover a lot of material, and hopefully I can keep it under my 15 to 20-minute mark. Um, so we want to look at this from the industrialization from the average American pers- uh, perspective. Much of this is a lot of consequences of becoming industrialization. First thing we're going to talk about is the massive urbanization that is occurring during this time after the Civil War into the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. Cities are growing at a rapid rate because businesses begin to move there because that's where the labor force is. And as businesses move there, job opportunities open up and more and more Americans begin to move from the countryside to the cities and the population of these cities dramatically increases because of the jobs. So urbanization is a rapid growth of cities and that occurs as a result of industrialization. Industrialization fuels a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about. It leads to the development of things like skyscrapers, you know, built with Carnegie Steel um, and, and the way cities look today. You begin to see in the late 19th century, that's late 1800s, that cities will begin to almost, you know, look a little similar to they do, uh, you know, if you went there today, streets would become, you know, um, more accessible to, to carriages and eventually automobiles, public transportation, those kinds of things. So besides though, just Americans moving there, you're going to have new Americans moving there. Uh, immigration takes off at, after urbanization kind of here and immigration takes off at an enormous rate. Um, immigrants will arrive to the cities to take jobs in factories just like regu- um, current Americans were moving from the countryside into the cities. And immigration was at first regulated by states and then it'll become more federalized as more and more immigrants are coming to the United States. And you'll see processing centers for these immigrants like Ellis Island, which is just outside New York City, and Angel Island on the West Coast just outside San Francisco. Now, this class of immigrant is going to be different. They kind of get dubbed new immigrants. I'm using air quotes there. It's an odd term because every immigrant's a new citizen to the to their country that they're traveling to, but they're called new immigrants because they're from culturally different backgrounds and they're coming from different places than immigrants had in the past. You know, traditional countries that were 
again, air quotes, like American immigration, uh, the British Isles, common one, French, German, those are kind of older class of immigrants. Now, those people will continue to come in this wave, plenty of Irish, plenty of German, but we've seen new groups, okay? People like Italians, Russians, uh, people from the the Balkan nations like Greece, Japan, and even China. So they have culturally different backgrounds. Um, and that's where they get the term, and again, in air quotes, new immigrants. Their language is different, and in many cases, their religion is too. And this will lead to plenty of prejudice from, again, in, in air quotes, Americans, who at their own time were immigrants as well at some point down the line. So why immigrants chose to come to the United States is both a simplica- uh, simple and complicated question to answer. I almost said simplicated. That would be a heck of a word. We usually like to boil it down to push and pull factors in the classroom. Now, obviously, it's much more complex than that in the upper levels of history, but push and pull works for the student to understand. Push is a reason that people want to leave their home nation, and pulls are attraction to the U.S. So a pull factor is why you would go, a push factor is why you leave. Employment issues and poverty were rampant in Europe at the time, and mechanization had put a lot of people out of work, and that caused a lot of people to leave. Um, couple that with some overcrowding in cities, and people just want a new start. New economic opportunities, probably the biggest push, uh, pull in push factor. So unemployment and then employment's the pull factor. So it's a nice little opposite. Others wanted to escape war uh, or religious or ethnic persecution. For instance, you have at this time, early 1900s, late 19th century, Russia going through its round of uh, persecution against Jewish people. You know, that's just to name one. There's plenty of others. And the United States offered uh, work, jobs for unskilled laborers, a chance to, to climb that economic ladder. Um, you didn't need to be a landowner. You didn't need to be have any kind of you know family wealth. You could you know there was that chance to climb up and become a Carnegie or Rockefeller wealthy like them. Now that didn't happen to everyone, but the opportunity was there, and it was difficult to do to be sure. And it also offered religious and political freedom. You didn't have to worry about the government necessarily being your, your persecuting force. Um, didn't stop you from prejudice from your neighbor, but you didn't have to worry about the government coming after you for religious or political beliefs, for the most part. Uh, during these ocean liners was much quicker and safer, which allowed for the increase in immigration. We're starting to see that, that idea, of, you know, again, from the last episode, technology fueling all this. It wasn't the greatest time. Uh, being in steerage as a passenger on a transatlantic trip was not fun. Steerage was the cheapest ticket and, you know, that very, very crowded in those areas of the ship. And many could only afford, you know, the steerage. So when you arrived at Ellis Island, and we're going to use this as the example, um, you're subject to a physical exam and questioning. Okay. So we're looking for common ailments. You know, can you work? Are you fit to be in the United States? Are you carrying a disease? One of the most common things they're looking at was uh, looking for, excuse me, was trichinosis, which is like pink eye on steroids, and it's super contagious. I mean, you think about when one of your kids or somebody has pink eye, it moves from person to person like crazy. And uh, if they were detained, they were kept in uh, a hospital on the island, which did not have the greatest conditions. And I'd also like to point out those detained at Angel Island also were in very, very horrid conditions. Angel Island usually saw many immigrants from Japan and China, so there was some extra prejudice there, as I'm going to get to in a minute. And uh, sometimes you could be sent home. The questions asked were very interesting. So after the physical exam, if you pass that, things like where were you going to stay? What is your profession? 
How much money do you have on you? And if they were polygamous, so into multiple marriage with multiple spouses, or an anarchist, uh, early terrorist organization wanted to see government gone. Only about 2% of all those who attempted to come through Ellis Island were ever rejected, in large part because there was a huge demand for labor and other restrictions would be placed on immigration later on in the 20s. But at this time period, we're talking about industrialization. Business owners are begging for the United States to let more immigrants in uh, to, to become their labor force. And it's just cool because we, I do a project with students in the eighth grade where they go to the Ellis Island database where you can go to libertyellisfoundation.org. You can search for a family member. You're not always going to find one. Uh, about 33 or one-third, I think, of Americans can trace a family member that arrived from there. I had family that arrived from there on both sides. And uh, students will look for a family member, but if they can't find one, it's still cool because they'll look up a random person and they'll learn about them and then write a narrative from that person's perspective. It's one of my favorite projects. I started doing it my first year, and it it's just amazing to see the students look for average people, you know, that bottom up view of history and, and kind of, you know, gain evidence and observe and infer what that person's uh, journey might have been like. There were some really negative reactions to immigration. Uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was passed because many Americans uh, had very prejudiced attitudes towards the Chinese. Again, culturally different, um, different religious practices, different culture beliefs. And many, many Americans felt that these Chinese were ruining our culture, ruining our country, and that we needed to cut off immigration for a while. That'll ban immigration for 10 years from China. And, you know, there's the other competition that you always see with immigration. Anytime somebody different is coming to your community from a different part of the world, humans have that natural aversion to, to not trust or not understand what's different. And, and not excusing it, but that was certainly part of this wave of immigration. Uh, and then the job competition, right? You have people competing for the same jobs in the same sectors, you know, um, quote unquote, air quote, um, excuse me, air quotes, uh, Americans moving from the countryside to take jobs in cities and again, competing with these New immigrants uh, would always bring conflict. When immigrants arrive, typically in cities especially, you're going to see things like Little Italy's and Chinatowns. Uh, you know, the south of Buffalo is, has a, that huge Polish sector that lights up every dingus day. There's a Little Italy in Niagara Falls. Um, immigrants will move to these places because they feel comfortable. And likely, they probably know people who are already there. And these people can help them adjust to, you know, uh, what they're going to be going through in their new lives and, you know, assimilate. So back to urbanization. The large influx of immigrants in American cities led to some issues, uh, mostly with living quarters. These quick buildings that were known as tenements, big thing you should know for this time period, they're hastily thrown up and contain absolutely horrible living conditions and sometimes lack basics like plumbing, uh, space, and clean water. Some of these rooms that these people live in just were, you know, you can go look at photos we'll talk about in a little bit with Jacob Reese here and how the other half lives. They're just atrocious. And it also allows for disease and crime to spread quickly throughout these tenement parts. On top of this, uh, the jobs these people work were very low paying and dangerous conditions for very long hours. And oftentimes the wages were not high enough for a family to survive. So you see children working as soon as they can to help support their family. And so, you know, the average wages couldn't do it. So, hey, kids got to go to work. And then on top of that, nobody's home with the kids because both people are working in that factory job or in that profession, what have you. 
And this is long before the idea of an eight-hour workday or minimum wage that we all enjoy today. And in the early going of this, labor unions are non-existent. And this led to a lot of anger and that turned to the, towards the top half society, the robber barons, that, that they were out of touch with what Americans were going through. Eventually, workers will unite to resist business owners and attempt to unionize, which is radically different for this and new for this time. Uh, it won't be until the Wagner Act of the 1930s during the New Deal when unions can kind of feel more comfortable in their role, in their existence, and feel secure. Uh, some of the early early unions were uh, one of the biggest ones was the Knights of Labor. They kind of gave way to the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, who was led by Samuel Gompers. Fascinating guy. Definitely encourage you to go look up more about him. Essentially, some of the demands that unions wanted the most popular across the country, if you know the challenges that workers are going through, those dangerous conditions, the long uh, workday, the low pay and child labor. If you know what the problems are, you can kind of guess what the unions are going to demand. They wanted an eight-hour workday, higher pay for their family, and uh, really safer conditions. That's the popular one everybody forgets about. A lot of times workers are okay with a long workday, just I want to be able to go home at the end of the day. And an end of child labor became another piece of that. Those are their biggest demands and the most effective way to get those demands was to go on strike or stop working. That's what a strike is. A few strikes were extremely popular. We're going to look at three. And the first one I want to discuss is the Haymarket Affair in Chicago. Now, some people will call it a riot. Uh, I prefer to call it an affair. It's less controversial and I think gives a better understanding of what happened and, and how intense this was. Now, it happened in 1886, very, very early strike. Uh, where union members were locked out of the McCormick Harvester Company in the plant. And they tried to bring in replacement workers, or scabs as they would call them. And the union uh, kind of got in a tussle with them, and the police had to break it up. And days later, they held the, the union held a meeting in Haymarket Square, where several prominent leaders spoke. And, you know, gave, yeah, inflammatory comments, right, demanding better pay and all those things. And, and you know, it, the meeting got a little tense. The police arrived to try to break up the meeting. And somebody threw a bomb from the top of one of the buildings into the middle of the police that killed several police officers. The rest just wreaked havoc. Uh, the police officers opened fire on the workers. Numerous more were killed in the process. I believe it's something like six to seven police officers died in the process. And God only knows how many workers. The business owners tried to paint the unions, and the union in this case especially, as a socialist or communist group that was totally out of hand and violent and wanted to overthrow capitalists and business owners and American society and government and just rip the whole thing down and start over. And many business owners tried to do the same thing, and this would hurt union involvement. The Haymarket Affair did not give unions a great look with the death of police officers at the time, at least in national news. This is going to start to change over time, though. Unions will gain a much, much better foothold. Several men were punished, uh, but no one to this day is sure who threw the bomb. One guy essentially ratted out the rest, and we're not really sure if he was uh, you know, fully forthcoming. But to get off that and try to get through this before 20 minutes is up. Uh, another strike that involves a figure we discussed last episode occurred at Carnegie Steel Plant, Homestead, Pennsylvania. Uh, while in Scotland at the time, Carnegie had turned over operations to his second-in-command, Henry Clay Frick, what a name, who had a reputation of being pretty heavy-handed in the business world. And in 1892, due to insane long working hours, awful pay, but above all else, really dangerous conditions at the Homestead plant, the workers went on strike. I want to point out that these these workers were very proud, and they felt like if they had dealt with Carnegie, things would have been different, but they're dealing with Frick. Now, Frick hires a significant amount of Pinker detectives, which is basically a mercenary army. These guys served as the early uh, Secret Service of the president before we actually had one. 
And with guns and a show of force, they attempt to break up the strike, but it ends in bloodshed when the workers don't back down and the Pinkertons fire into the crowd, killing several of them. Eventually, the PA militia comes in after a couple months to break up the strike with public disorder. So this really mars Carnegie's uh, reputation. He and Frick will have a falling out after that. But the last one is also very interesting because in all of these scenarios, you really see the government being on the side of the business owner. It will not be until about the 1900s early that you're going to start to see a more fair game take place. The Pullman strike in 1894. This one was big. Uh, Pullman basically made very nice luxury cars and the workers operated those luxury cars and they lived in Pullman towns and on the cars. And what the Pullman car company did after a recession was they cut their workers pay, but didn't cut their rent with it. And so the workers in response, (coughs) excuse me, went on strike and this greatly impacted rail traffic throughout the nation. And eventually when Eugene V. Debs, who will run for president as a socialist a couple times, he's the president of the American Railway Union, the ARU at the time. He calls for a nationwide strike, which crushed the economy because rail was the most common way to move freight, move products, and with that grounded, the economy just absolutely uh, took a tank. So eventually, Grover Cleveland will use troops to break up the strike, and he argues that it's in the national interest to get these railroads running again, and he actually places Debs in jail for a short period of time while uh, the strike you know, kind of dissipates. We see that as a constant theme, the government stepping in, taking the side of the business owner instead of kind of you know arbitrating and playing that fair middle person. We will see Theodore Roosevelt do that kind of next unit much more so. So with all of these issues for workers, it spills over into the lives in the cities where they live. And this leads to some people trying to combat the issues in cities. And this will blur into the the progressive side of the next podcast we do too, the next unit. One individual, Jacob Reese, was a police photographer and he publishes a work known as How the Other Half Lives in 1890 that showed the horrid conditions of urban life. Again, I'm coming back to him next podcast where I'll do him more justice. Jane Adams was another individual who found Settlement House in Chicago. Settlement House were designed to help uh, city dwellers, immigrants get child care, learn English to assimilate to American society, socialize with each other, and receive health care if needed. Um, this was known as Whole House. Very, very, very famous. And there's many like it around the nation. Uh, I believe New York City had a Henry Street Settlement uh, House was, was our version of that. So both Reese and Adams are certainly part of the progressive movement, which seeks to better society, and we're coming back to them in our next podcast. Another group that I'm going to put in air quotes try to help um, Americans out were political machines, big time air quotes. These were groups, basically glorified gangs, that controlled cities through influencing election and buying of votes and other corrupt methods. They did their best to gain support from immigrants, especially by employing them or finding them housing. Then they could call on these folks around election time and use violent means as well to maintain power. So the idea was, if I do this favor for you, I'm expecting you to vote election time, vote for me. The most famous is Tammany Hall in New York City. Uh, It was led by Boss Tweed or William Marcy Tweed. So... That you have the settlement house folks, the progressive folks trying to help out urbanization, and yes, political machines in their own way trying to do that. Next episode, we're going to get into progressives in their quest to fix a lot of these issues we talked about from the bottom half up of society. So we saw urbanization, large amounts of immigration. We saw labor unions in this uh, form up in this in this bottom up look of industrialization. So now next episode, we're going to get to the progressives and we're going to see a president who will come in and try to give the American people more of a fair deal rather than taking the side of big business.
So that's it for Holly History. We hope you enjoyed listening. Make sure you uh, follow us on Twitter at History Holly. I wish we could have gotten a better handle in the right correct order, but oh well. And uh, please email us some questions and your thoughts at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This has been Holly History.